Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and this week on Lost in Science I'm actually going to be speaking to James Kerry who is a researcher up in the top end of Australia looking at coral reefs. He's involved in the ARC Centre for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about the coral reef bleaching that is happening Right now. You guys know about that? Yeah, yeah. Major global event. It's damaged like over half the Great Barrier Reef or something like that. It is a ridiculous amount of the Great Barrier Reef. And he's actually been going out and doing a lot of the surveying. So he's um, he's sort of one of the research scientists that's seeing what is going on. Um, So it'll be really interesting to talk to him about it. He's got some interesting insights. Chris... Well, I'll be speaking to Gregory Crocetti from the Scale Free Network, which is an art and science working together. And he's going to be coming in to talk about their new graphic novel, The Invisible War, all about the the battle that goes on inside your body when you fight a bacterial infection. Interesting. Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, I'm going to be looking into what Game of Thrones and applied mathematics have in common and it's more, it's more than just nerds. <laughs> There's a little bit more to it than that, but <laughs> I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit more detail later in the show. Oh, interesting. Well, it sounds like it is a good one to stay tuned for. My guest today is Project Manager of the National Coral Bleaching Task Force, James Kerry. James, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks, Claire. What is the Coral Bleaching Task Force? What, what are you guys tasked with doing? The task force was convened by Professor Terry Hughes uh, at the end of 2015 when we were warned by NOAA, that's the uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency, that there might be a third bleaching event uh, on the Great Barrier Reef in 2016. Right. Uh, we wanted to respond to that by coordinating as many scientific institutions as possible to mobilize scientists to study the event so that we can understand as much as possible about what's happening and why it's happening. So how many scientific organizations do you have on board for the task force? So we've got 10 organizations on board. Some of the major ones that some of your listeners might be aware of are, for example, the Australian Institute of Marine Science, CSIRO, NOAA, and some of the major universities around Australia as well. And you guys have had forewarning about these bleaching events since 2015, you said? Yeah, since late 2015. Right. As part of your role with the Coral Bleaching Task Force, I imagine you're in North Queensland, is that right? That's right, I'm in Townsville. You're in Townsville, yeah. So you must be spending a lot of time out on the reef making observations. So what, what sort of surveying have you been doing? Okay, well, there's kind of two prongs to the surveying that we're doing I've been involved directly with the aerial surveying, which has involved helicopters and light aircraft. Um, We've been flying at about 500 feet, and so far we've surveyed 766 reefs, and we're able to generate a score 
based on the bleaching severity for each reef. So that's a way of covering a large area quite quickly. The other prong is the boats, so our research vessels that are going out to different sections of the reef, and that's involving multiple organisations. And they're doing in-water surveys, so they're diving, and they're getting much more detailed information on particularly like which species of corals are bleaching and the extent of the bleaching. And they're also helping to validate the aerial surveys that we've been doing. Each reef that you do an aerial survey on will then be then be backed up with a more in-depth analysis. We are very unlikely to be able to in-water survey each reef that has been aerial surveyed, but right. certainly um, we're doing our best to get as many regions of the Great Barrier Reef as possible. I think we'll cover all the regions um, with a sample of reefs from, from each region. Importantly, what, what are you seeing out there at the moment? From the air, it's been quite serious what we've been seeing. So from about Port Douglas north, we surveyed 520 reefs and we saw uh, extensive bleaching. We only saw four reefs that had no bleaching of any kind. And most of the reefs that we saw, we were scoring in categories three and four. And they're the highest bleaching categories on our scale. So a category four is 60% or more of all the coral bleached on that reef. That's extremely extensive bleaching. It is, and, and if you compare it to the 1998 and 2002 bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef, it's quite a bit more severe. Um, the number of corals that are in that, that category three and four is about three and four times, sorry, the number of reefs is about three or four times more than we were seeing in those previous mass bleaching events. And is it consistent up and down the Great Barrier Reef, or is it worse at different parts? Yeah, as I mentioned, it's very severe north of Port Douglas, and then you enter a sort of transition zone from Port Douglas down to round about Mackay, Townsville region, where you're still getting moderate levels of bleaching. And, you know, this is now probably two-thirds of the reef that have some degree of bleaching. And in the south, it's it's improving, thankfully, where we're seeing much, much lower levels or no bleaching at all on most reefs. And why has this summer been the worst ever for coral bleaching? We've got two issues, really, that are, are relevant here. The first is that Baseline temperatures are going up year on year or certainly decade on decade as a result of climate change. So corals are already facing a temperature uh, environment that is higher than they would have been facing 50 years ago. And what happened this summer is that we had El Nino that causes a spike in summer temperatures. And that spike has pushed corals outside their pretty thermally sensitive range And it's just pushed them to the point that they've flipped and they've bleached. And when that happens, to explain it to to your listeners who who might not be aware, corals have um, an an algae that we call zooxanthellae that live within them, and that's what gives them their color. Mm. And when they get too hot, the relationship with that algae breaks down, and the coral actually expels the algae. So all you see is the white skeleton that's left behind through the see-through tissue. And that's what we call coral bleaching. And can a coral survive without having that relationship with the algae? For most coral, the algae are their primary source of energy. They photosynthesize and provide the coral with energy. So they're effectively starving once they're bleached. And it depends from species to species. Some will die within days of being bleached. Others can last for months. And we're still sort of generating data or getting surveys, reports back on the levels of mortality that are occurring as a result of this bleaching, and that's going to be ongoing for several months as a result of this event. But certainly based on the severity of the event, um, 
I don't want to put a number on it, but we would expect quite high mortality, particularly in the north. So, James, now we know the extent of the bleaching. What's next for the research? So I think the next goal, what we're going to continue to do is these in-water surveys because they're a lot more time-consuming and obviously you can only cover so many reefs per day with a boat. Continue to do those over the coming months and look at the degree of mortality that arises from this event. Also with the data, we can look at patterns like temperature patterns, where there's been cloud cover on the reef, because that actually has an impact on the degree of bleaching. We're going to try and relate that to the severity of the bleaching that we've been seeing, and hopefully it will tell us more about why we've been seeing bleaching in certain areas and not in others. Now, a lot of our listeners come from different parts of Australia, but I think most people would be concerned about this extensive bleaching event happening on the Great Barrier Reef and thinking about ways that they can help. So what would be your recommendations for people, how they can help? Yeah, so I think um, there's probably two things I would mention. The first is that in Australia, we're one of the highest per capita emitters of carbon. We're quite heavily reliant on fossil fuels for a lot of our energy. You know, our lifestyles, perhaps we could be a little more conservative in, in some of the ways that we use energy. So Moving to more renewable energy sources would be good, and trying to reduce our individual carbon footprints would be good. As a nation, I think we need to be at the forefront globally of um, trying to reduce carbon emissions and to encourage other nations to do that. But then within Australia as well, I think it would be great if listeners could encourage their politicians to push for more conservation of the Great Barrier Reef. So... Another issue that affects corals is um, water quality. And there's more that we could do to improve agricultural uh, land use practices around the Great Barrier Reef so that we don't have so many chemicals flowing onto the reef and and sediment that can cause uh, corals a lot of stress and and impede their recovery. But also reducing things like shipping and fishing pressure on the reef. So those are kind of issues that people can raise with their politicians who who can take that to the minister and hopefully we can see some change locally for the Great Barrier Reef that will reduce the pressures that it's facing. Absolutely. So talking about it on a local level and then also at a, at a government level makes yeah. a huge difference, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And globally as well. You know, I think that this event is us staring at climate change in the face and until we, as the, the United Nations, if you will, yeah. work to reduce carbon emissions, um, this is going to be something that will keep happening. James, thank you so much for speaking to us on Lost in Science today and giving us a scientific insight into this event. You're very welcome. You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop... Lost in Science. You are listening to Lost in Science. Now, here on Lost in Science, we love it when people combine science with art. And we also love bacteria and gut flora. And these things all come together in a new graphic novel, The Invisible War, which is produced by Melbourne-based collaboration, The Scale-Free Network. Uh, Today, I am speaking to one of the people who are The Scale-Free Network, Gregory Crichetti. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. Now, first of all, uh, the obvious question... Invisible War, the graphic novel, what is it about? 
Well, it's a story based in the trenches of uh, World War One, mm-hmm. or behind the trenches of World War One. Its central character is a nurse named Annie. But then the story takes a bit of a twist when she swallows a dysentery bacterium called Shigella. We call them Shiga. They were called Shiga at the time of the war. Yep. And she, uh, the story enters into her intestines and then the story really becomes about this invisible battle or invisible war inside her gut uh, microbiome. Which, as I've seen in the book, it sort of mirrors the fighting in World War One. You have uh, you have trench warfare, you have massive explosions, you have chemical warfare, chemical warfare. Yeah, a, a lot of death and destruction inside her intestines. Yep, and some massive explosions. That is that is fantastic. So you said it, it features dysentery. She, um, the nurse, contracts dysentery. Before reading this, I didn't realise that dysentery was such a big problem in World War One. Yeah, especially it. So this is set in 1916, mm-hmm. behind the Western Front. 1915, Gallipoli, yep. dysentery killed more people than bullets and bombs. But by 1916, the levels of hygiene had increased a lot, and it was also better conditions, like there weren't as many horses and flies because it wasn't as close to the tropics. Yep. So dysentery wasn't quite as bad a problem, but it was still a massive problem. And But they had yeah, much better control measures and quarantine measures in place once people were diagnosed with dysentery. Casey, I believe you mentioned in that, and I should mention that, that the book also has a lot of, I suppose, appendices with more information about the scientific topics covered in there. It talks about how dysentery was a kind of a notifiable disease. A suspected case had to be telegrammed up to the people in charge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's It was really fun. Our writer, Alcid, just went, while I was going really deep into the science and meeting with some of the world experts on dysentery, Shigella, I should say, in uh, in the Pasteur Institute in Paris, Alsa was going really deep into the history and the history of nursing and medical treatment of dysentery during World War One. And so it was a really fascinating thing when we came together with mm-hmm. sort of looking at how we deal with it today and how we dealt with it then. And of course, this is pre-antibiotics, which didn't come around till the Second World War. And so how to treat a case of dysentery was a big mystery back then. Mm. But I might add that we're now in a situation with antibiotic resistance in this day and age now where we're actually starting to see antibiotic resistance strains of of Shigella which can't be treated with certain antibiotics. Uh, So broad spectrum sort of resistance Shigella. So we're now almost starting to go back to that 100-year-old situation. I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but of course Annie's own gut flora do flora and fauna, I suppose you could say, well, do play a big role. Yes, look, I should correct you right there. Uh, my microbiology mentor and supervisor during my PhD, um, Linda Blackall, big shout out there, she uh, always corrects me when I say flora or fauna. Yep. They're called biota. Oh, biota. They're definitely okay. not plants or animals. Yeah, so microbiota or gut biota. It doesn't roll off the tongue like flora does. It's a it? metaphor. Yeah, I know. But the magic thing in our story, yeah, is not so much the bacteria and the way they fight, but the way the viruses fight. That, that was the inspiration behind mm-hmm. the whole story. Because, yeah, the, again, we don't want to give too much away. The, the bacteriophages or phages, how do you pronounce it? Well, this is a really interesting thing. Um, outside of America, it's bacteriophage. In yep. America, it's bacteriophage. We kind of, kind of wish it was bacteriophage because it rhymes better with certain mm. things. But uh, bacteriophage... It's thought that we should say it as it's singular and plural, not bacteriophages. Okay. Anyway, a little bit of terminology right. there. Um, bacteriophage are bacteria that can infect viruses, mm-hmm. and they're everywhere, absolutely everywhere in the world. There's more bacteriophage than all other creatures on Earth combined, and they live everywhere that there's mucus. So 
all animals make mucus, one of the most defining features of animals. And so everywhere we have mucus, you know, nose, mouth, vagina, gut, all the way through our gut mm-hmm. and digestive system. Everywhere there's mucus, there's bacteriophage lining that mucus. And so they're like this snotty protective layer that might kill off invading bacteria. Yeah, because the theme of symbiosis obviously is, uh, you know, organisms depending on each other is something that's very important in this book, but also in the other two books that, that you've published. Why are you so interested in symbiosis? It's a really beautiful metaphor for working together and for cooperation. You know, when Darwin wrote about survival of the fittest, mm-hmm. and he didn't really endorse that term forever and ever, but, you know, that idea of survival of the fittest, you know, we've now really moved on to from being individuals versus individuals to where groups working together mm-hmm. will outcompete individuals. And so we need to think of ourselves as a group, as an ecosystem. And so our microbiome form part of that group. And it's the viruses lining our mucus that form this extra layer of an, an extra symbiosis that we weren't aware about until two or three years ago. And uh, it was the amazing work of uh, Dr. Jeremy Barr, who is in San Diego State Uni at the moment, but he's coming back to Monash Uni. He's Australian, he's from Brisbane. He's coming back to Monash Uni uh, from August and to start up his own research group here in Melbourne. Okay, wow. Yeah, so yeah, his discovery that really opened up a whole world and, of thinking about how viruses can, can form a really amazing symbiotic relationship with animals. And this one is a bit different to, I guess, your previous books. Uh, you're working again with the writer Elsa Wilde, like you mentioned, uh, but also you've got comic artist Ben Hutchings on board. I'm familiar with Ben's work being a bit of a comics aficionado myself. Um, how was that different, working uh, in the comic format? My God, it was so much more work. We had no idea what we were in for when we thought, oh, hey, let's do a graphic novel. This will be fun. When we created our previous two picture books, The Squid, The Vibrio and The Moon and Zobie and The Zooks, they each had about 20 illustrations and we worked really closely with Aviva to transform, and this is myself and my partner, Bryony, mm-hmm. who worked really closely from Ailsa's script or story rather with those picture books to storyboard that, 20 illustrations. However, when you're storyboarding a graphic novel, there's about four or five illustrations per page, and it's a 64-page graphic novel. So we didn't even do the maths and didn't realise we were signing up for about two to 300 storyboards to make that happen. So instead of taking two or three weeks, it took about three months. Yeah, it is a, it is a lengthy process. Yeah. But well yeah. worth it, um, definitely. Uh, so how can, people, how can people obtain, or how can people read The Invisible War? Yeah, okay. So if you go to theinvisiblewar.com.au, mm-hmm. that's the website we've set up for this book, there's two main links there. If you're a teacher, an Australian teacher, you can click on the Scoodle link and it'll take you into our national teaching resources database called Scoodle and you can download the book for free along with the teaching resources that we've developed. But if you're not a teacher and you'd like to read a book, let's say you're a science nerd or a comic uh, nerd, you can click on our possible link and pre-order a copy through our crowdfunding campaign that we're going to be running leading up to Anzac Day. Brilliant. Okay, well, so it's it's available for all kinds of nerds. Yes. Absolutely. Well, um... I encourage you to go to theinvisiblewar.com.au and thank you again to Gregory Crochetti for speaking to us about it. Thanks for having me. Cheers. I'm Maggie Devon Pocock and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. Okay, so you are listening to Lost in Science and we often 
talk about science fiction on the show and in between segments on the show probably more often than not. (laughs) Partly because some sci-fi is plausible and some sci-fi is misleading. And partly because you normally wear a t-shirt that's got science fiction on it. That's true. That's true as well. You can't see that at home, but I do often wear a t-shirt that is... Maybe we should post used t-shirts. Every week. Every week. Yeah. Possibly, yes. Start a conversation. Yeah. And... (laughs) And sometimes the science fiction becomes reality. So, you know, things that have been Science in fiction becomes science fact. That's right. As any <laughs> sub-editor worth their salt would put in the newspaper if they were writing that. But we do rarely talk about fantasy in the same way. And that's probably because fantasy is just that. It's pure fantasy. But most of our listeners, I would guess, have probably at least heard of George R. R. Martin's epic fantasy series of novels, which is collectively known as Game of Thrones, and the TV series that was based on the books. And like most epic fantasy stories since the template of Lord of the Rings was released in the 1950s, the cast of fictional characters is huge in Game of Thrones. There are so many characters. Do they have silly names? No, they're pretty ordinary names, really. Okay. You know, Stark and... You know, Ed and John and, mm. you know, pretty pretty boring names, really. Uh, but they're all from they're from multiple families and multiple countries in this story. Fictional um, countries. Well, yeah, fictional countries. I, I know the TV series looks basically like a map of Europe, mm. but the world in the novels looks completely different. So they've just done that for some bizarre reason on the TV show. Which is better, Stu, the, the, the books or the, or the I've TV not stories? read the books, I have okay. to admit. I have not got time for fantasy novels these days. I've read too many as a youngster. Yeah. And I'm done with dwarves and elves. And Maybe we'll ask you that off air. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in later on. But look, what can science tell us about a story that involves magic and dragons and witches and zombies and various other supernatural creatures? Well, how about who the story is about? So as I said, there's a huge number of characters in this story. And a couple of years ago, a New Zealand mathematician who was a fan of the series created a model for predicting who would die in the series based on the likelihood of a chapter featuring them appearing in future books. So the books are written, each chapter is from the point of view of a particular character. Okay. So he put together this model where he could predict whether or not there would be a chapter about a particular character, and if there's no chapter about them, then you could assume that they're not in the story anymore, which means they probably died. Should we be giving a spoiler warning at this point? Oh, look, I'm not going to. I'm going to try not to spoil it, but if you're worried about spoilers and you think that you might pick up some nuance. I'm not giving anything away that hasn't been certainly in the TV show. And the books, as I'm going to mention later, the books have stalled, so the TV show is actually ahead of where the books are up to at this point in time. Look, you know, this mathematician's model was probably more accurate and probably less fun than coming up with people's own theories. Um, The most prominent theory of which character was going to get killed in Game of Thrones was how much you liked them. If, yeah. people, if people really like someone, you go, oh, well, they're, they're probably going to die because that seems to be the kind of guy Except George Martin is. one character who sticks around. I, I, I haven't seen it. I don't want any spoilers. Okay, oh, okay. okay. Oh, you haven't seen it? Not at no. all, no. no. Or read it. What are you waiting for? Uh, the end. The end, yeah, yeah <laughs> basically. A mathematical so, model. Yeah. yeah. Worthy. Yeah, I don't, I don't want... I want to save time. I don't want to watch the whole thing. I just want an equation. <laughs> an equation that explains yeah, the Yeah, I want to be able thing. to derive it all from first principles. Well, yeah. well, 
That that's one that's one mathematical model was who's going to die according to this guy from New Zealand, but mathematicians are not the kind of people who leave things to chance. And a couple of Game of Thrones enchanted mathemats from Minnesota wanted to know out of this huge cast of characters who's the main character, who is this story actually about. So what they did was they set about analysing the third book in the series, which is the scientifically implausibly titled Storm of Swords. <laughs> it's like it's like the um, fantasy equivalent of Sharknado. <laughs> yeah. What is this Storm of Swords? Um, so what they did was built a network between each of the characters in the story. So they chose the third book because they figured by then most of the major characters are established, the plot is well underway, but they wanted to know are the Starks or the Targaryens or the Lannisters the real stars of the show or the book, depending on what you're looking at. Um, that's the Don't three main so confused, families. Chris. I'm you just have... wondering, it sounds like a futile exercise to me. Apart from the fact when you say that, that by the third book, the story should be well underway, I would hope so. Um, you know, <laughs> oh, look. It's, it's, isn't it like ask, looking at a soap opera and asking who the main characters of a soap opera? I mean, it's... Well, not really, because what they did was they looked at whether the characters were mentioned in the text within 15 words of each other. Okay. And then they were linked together, building a network comprised of varying thicknesses of links between the characters. Mm. So the thicker the link, the more okay. central that character is. Also trying to see who's at the centre of this web. Basically. Right. So there's some pretty obvious characters spring out. And the webs, I'll, I'll tell you where to, to go and look. And you can look this up and have a look at where your favourite character might fall in this web. So some of the obvious characters, for those people who, who know what I'm talking about, Chris won't no. figure out what any no. of these people are. The eldest member of the Stark clan, Rob Stark. Shows up pretty heavily. Oh, uh, the brooding bastard Jon Snow shows up pretty heavily. Oh, Jon Snow, and of course the far-flung mother of dragons, Daenerys Targaryen, mm-hmm. shows up pretty heavily. But none of these are the main character. What? And if you've really watched the show and really paid attention or really read the books, you would know that the primary character. Can is, I guess? You can. You can guess. Tyrion Lannister. It is Tyrion Lannister. It's the imp. But it makes kind of, it's a lot of sense. He's involved in everything and he moves all around the country and he does all these things. Yeah. He's also the first build whenever the show comes on. I think it's just because he's paid the most, possibly. Or he's the main um, character. Although, although, you know, Charles Dance should probably get more than him because he's a better known actor. But anyway, Tyrion Lannister is the central character. He's got more links with more other characters. He's in the story more often. It makes, you know, mathematical sense that he is the central character. So if we applied this to, say, Neighbours, we could could get, like, Toadie is the central character of... I think you'll find it was Bouncer. Bouncer, (laughs) right, okay. He just used to run around from house to house. Yeah. And everyone would call after him, Bouncer, Bouncer, so that would come up in the scripts quite often, you see. Um, (laughs) Now, anyone following the show or the books will know that George R.R. Martin has not put out a new book in a couple of years, and the TV show has actually overtaken the book's plot. Mm. So they've made TV episodes that the books haven't actually mm. covered yet. So that kind of confuses the whole issue a little bit. So this could all change if he ever manages to get a new book out. But look, I think at this point the numbers don't lie. The clear winner of the Game of Thrones is Tyrion Lannister. And the story revolves around him and his adventures more than any other character. So if you want to look at this amazing web that they've put together with their analysis of the text of the Game of Thrones, 
It's from the annoyingly named Math Association of America. They lost an S there from maths, which I would have included personally, but that's them. (laughs) They have a journal called Math Horizons, and the article is called Network of Thrones by Andrew Beveridge and Jie Shan uh, from April 2016. So go and look that up, and it's a really cool network, and I'll put a link on our... uh, They couldn't call it Game of Nodes or something like that? (laughs) Game of Noids? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.